From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Fanvichka Rathfisk has lived in the United States on a green card for nearly 16 years. This election convinced him it's time to become a citizen. If I'm not putting my vote down, I'm not going to be able to say, oh man, next four years going to stink. Well, I can't say that because I wasn't a part of it. The first in Colorado Matters series of interviews with new citizens who are eligible to vote for the first time. Then, a Boulder researcher says marine life in the Antarctic plays a unique role in the face of climate change. She believes natural ecosystems can recover, given the chance and a little help from humans. Plus, Purplish examines early voting and intimidation, and a Denver teen shares her journey to cope with political polarization and the pandemic. The upcoming elections could be the most crucial in recent memory, and that means Colorado Public Radio has an even greater responsibility to help you separate facts from fiction. Your financial support ensures that unbiased, fact-based journalism is delivered to Colorado voters so we can all make informed decisions when filling out our ballots. Thank you for making the leap from listener to listener member at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. There are many paths to citizenship. Each one leads to a naturalization ceremony, an oath, and a certificate. Immigration has risen steeply in recent decades. More than 40 million people who live in the United States were born outside its borders, and nearly half of those folks are naturalized citizens. Despite political polarization and the pandemic, thousands of immigrants continue to raise their hands and swear true faith and allegiance to the United States of America. For more than a year, CPR's Hart Vandenberg has been photographing new Americans as they take the oath of allegiance, and I've been asking them what it's like to become citizens now. We'll be sharing four of those stories over the course of this week, and their photos are on CPR.org. Today, let's meet Panvechka Rathfisk. He lives in Longmont, Colorado, where he's the general manager for a lawn care company. He was 22 years old when he moved to New York City from Cambodia. Uh, originally, it was just for school. I came out here in 2004. I went to a small college, small private college in New York City. It's called the King's College. So when you decided to come to the United States to go to the King's College, did you know that you wanted to become a U.S. citizen? Uh, at the time, no. The idea didn't really occur to me. The intention was come to school, get an education, and then go back. And you know, Because Cambodia is more of a developing country, so a lot of it going into this whole process was like there's an understanding there's a lot more that I can do going back to Cambodia uh, in terms of, you know, being able to kind of create a path for other people, uh, the kids in, in the neighborhood that I was from, in the community that I was in, that, you know, give them the idea that, you know, there are possible options. And tell me a little bit about where you grew up in Cambodia. I grew up in the city. Uh, I grew up in the capital city, uh, Phnom Penh. I was born right after the genocide of Pol Pot. But when Pol Pot was gone, a lot of that is just war and civil wars and just constant coup one after another. And uh, it's just really unstable. But that was life, you know, and you didn't really know anything better. You thought that was normal. And we couldn't own property. We couldn't, you know, there was no real currency to spend. There was no market. Everything was all rationed. 
school was mandatory, but it's just all indoctrinations and all that kind of stuff. And like even my name wasn't given to me by my parents. My name was given me by the state. And it just means November because that was the month I was born in. So yeah, I was it was it, it was raw it was hard, you know, you constantly face starvation and so you constantly have to figure out ways to hustle and find something to eat, I guess. You expect to go out and kind of make your own way in the world, I guess. So that you don't burn your family. I have to wonder, I mean, growing up like that, where you're in charge of yourself from such a young age, how was it moving to the United States and going to the King's College where that's a very different background than a lot of kids had going to school? It is very different because when I started college, I was already 22, the, the age where most kids graduate college. And so I go in with a more perceptive understanding, I guess, because I knew what was at stake. Like, first day I got in, I went through the school. It's like, I'm, allow- I'm legally allowed to work 20 hours a week. I need 20 hours a week. You have to give me a job because I need food. When most of my friends, nobody worked. And I think with that understanding, because I come from a world where there's no safety net, there's no social programs that you can fall back onto. If you don't work, you don't eat. And in that sense, New York City fit me perfectly. Because it's a hustling city, you know. Everybody has to go out and hustle. Plus, I spent a lot of my years growing up with a Western family. So I was introduced to more of the Western concept, Western way of thinking. And I've experienced more of things. And, you know, and I spoke English. So it wasn't much difficult for me, I guess. But still, it was an adjustment. I didn't know anyone. I, you know, so intentionally, I just wanted to come in, went to college, and then went back. And then I ended up meeting my wife there, and so it all kind of changed from there on. Uh, you met your wife in college? Uh, I actually met her before. I took a year off before college and just kind of backpack around Southeast Asia. Met her one of the trips. Can't remember where. Could have been Thailand or Malaysia. Thought she was kind of cool, so I tried to talk to her. She, she didn't want to have anything to do with me. But those, that was the first time I met her, and then I realized she's from California. And so we just kind of stay in touch. And then I told her I was going to New York for school. And then when I showed up, there she was. What a small world. That's really sweet. It was weird, yes. <laughs> How long have you all been married? Uh, going on 17 years now. So tell me then about your pathway to citizenship. You came to the United States on a student visa and you got married 17 years ago. Uh, once we got married... It was easier for me to find more work if I had a permanent residency. So because I married an American citizen, it was easy for me. So I kind of got a green card and just start working and going to school at the time and didn't think anything about it. Because she also mentioned that she wanted to move back to Cambodia with me. But about a year in after our marriage, she just said she didn't want to leave the city. So that's, I think, was the first time the idea of me becoming a U.S. citizen was brought up, and I actually wasn't opposed to it because I love America. But at the same time, I'm still holding on to the idea that maybe I should move back to Cambodia at some point. So that's the reason why it took me forever to apply for a U.S. citizenship because I've had the green card for over 10 years. I mean, because technically I could have applied and become a U.S. citizen after three years. But also because 
having a green card permanent residency allowed me to do everything else in the U.S. except voting and you know serving on the jury. And but then I also realized very recently having very good discussion with a, a very good mentor of mine, and he mentioned something about early this year. I think that's what prompted me to actually finally say, you know what, I need to become a U.S. citizen now because. Because he mentioned the idea, like, well, yeah, politics is always going to be messy. But that's the whole reason why our country is great, because we all have a role in it. We all have a part to play. And if you're not playing your part, then it's kind of hard for you to really actually have an opinion about it, because you can't change it. You know, it's just like a light bulb just went off for me. So you're going to be able to vote for the first time in November. What are the issues that are most important to you right now? Uh... I think the most important issue for me right now is I've always been environmentally minded, but also right now the the economics in general is very, very difficult. And I think there should be some kind of a a system in place where there are more encouragement in terms of job creations and, you know, especially in a smaller local communities, you know, and we've been also having so many problems with fire this year. Well, we don't have enough resources to combat that because there's been so many cuts here and there that, you know, we have to be more proactive when it comes to these kind of things. And so going into the election this year, I think I'm looking to most of those options and see which of the candidates is going to be pushing to get all those things done rather than just pull back and watch. And which of the candidates aligns most with your views on those issues? You know... I honestly can't really say. <laughs> I, I'm not a loyal to any party politics at this point. I am close, but I'm not 100% sure who I'm going to vote for. And this isn't the first election since you've been eligible to be a U.S. citizen. What is it about this election that really made the decision for you that now is the time to become a citizen and vote? Well, I'm from New York, so I know a lot about Donald Trump. <laughs> And suffice to say, he's not the most popular character in the city. And I think a lot of that goes into it. And I think a lot of it, too, is as much as some of the policies that he's implemented over his first term that I really like, I also think a lot of things he's doing is pretty harmful to the country. If I'm not putting my vote down, it's I'm not going to be able to say, oh, man, next four years going to stink. Well, I can't say that because I wasn't a part of it. And so I think that's important to me to be able to say, regardless of the outcome comes November, I I would be able to tell myself, I can live with it. I did my part. How do you think that being an immigrant shapes your perspective of U.S. politics? Uh, I think a lot of it, too, it's these rights and privileges that's afforded to me by just for the sake of being a U.S. citizen, is it's also a responsibility. As much as it's a privilege, it is also a responsibility. I'm a fan of history, so I go back, I look at the sacrifices that people before me have made in order for me to be where I am today, to be able to go to you know, a ballot box and say, I have my right. It's afforded to me by the U.S. Constitution that I can choose who's going to lead the country. You know, I mean, up until the early 20th century, Asians weren't allowed to vote. I look at those things and I take it as a privilege and a responsibility and it allows me to see, you know, because I have friends that I work with, you know, that are Americans, they're born and raised here. They're not even going to vote. You know, like growing up in Cambodia, 
I couldn't vote because my vote didn't count. Here, my vote does count. That's Panvitchka Rathfisk of Longmont, Colorado. He grew up in Cambodia and he became a U.S. citizen in July. In our series, New Americans, we're sharing the stories of people who have recently become citizens, despite social upheaval, a pandemic, and political polarization. Antarctica doesn't have a government. It has a body of multinational leaders that decide how its ecosystems and resources can be protected and used. That body is meeting right now in Hobart, Australia, and one scientist from Colorado is there. Well, digitally. It's all online because of the pandemic. Cassandra Brooks is an assistant professor in environmental studies at CU Boulder. She's helped to expand conservation for Antarctic marine ecosystems, and she's featured in the new PBS documentary called The Age of Nature. It's all about the ways natural ecosystems can recover given the chance and a little help from humans. We know that marine protected areas can conserve biodiversity, and they're more important than ever because in the face of climate change, they may be one of the only things that can provide resilience to our system. Our system is undergoing incredible stress, and it's one thing that we can help with is is set aside areas that we know are important, that we know are vulnerable, and give them a chance to be resilient in the face of climate change. Cassandra... Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You've been going to Antarctica for the last 15 years. What drew you originally to that part of the globe? I understand that it had something to do with a particular fish. (laughs) That's true. I grew up in rural New England with a real strong connection to the water and to the ocean, but I never dreamed I would get to go to Antarctica. I didn't know people even went there. And it was when I uh, was completing a master's in marine science at Cal State University that I was given the opportunity to study a deep sea fish called the Antarctic toothfish. You may know it in your grocery store as Chilean sea bass. And the reason I got to study it is that there was a growing commercial fishery literally in the most remote part of the ocean uh, in the Ross Sea, Antarctica. And Ross Sea is an embayment um, that's, I guess you could say, closest to New Zealand. It's 4,000 kilometers away from New Zealand, but that's the closest embayment. It is the most remote fishery in the world. And that is why I was there, is to try to get more information for its management. Wow. So the toothfish brought you there. What keeps you going back? Yeah, from my first trip there, I just had such a visceral connection to it. And I think maybe people living in Colorado can resonate with this, is that there's very few places you can go in the world that feel like true wildernesses where there isn't human impacts, uh, where actually down in Antarctica, there aren't indigenous people, there there aren't sovereign states. So it's very much a space that's dedicated to science and dedicated to, uh, to being a natural preserve. And so literally just going to this place where whales are just popping up off the side of the ship and looking at you and penguins are all around and and animals aren't afraid of you at all. They just approach you with curiosity because you're sort of a a wonder that you're even there at all. And, And the fish are just, all the wildlife are amazing. They have amazing polar adaptations, antifreeze in their blood, and just all these things that make them explicitly adapted to this extreme place. And so that's the other reason. It's just a fascinating place to study. It sounds like an incredible experience. So no one owns Antarctica. It's this landmass, and it's one and a half times the size of the United States. And it has some of the most important marine ecosystems on the planet, like you're talking about. And it's a global commons. So a multinational body governs it. I understand that you were up until three o'clock this morning to join the meeting for that governing body in Hobart, Australia. 
what's on the line of the talks this year? Yeah, good question. So yeah, there are, um, as I mentioned, there are there are commercial fisheries around Antarctica. And so there is this multinational body that manages those fisheries. And they meet uh, once a year to take policy decisions, normally in Australia, now remotely. And this year, it's really difficult because of the pandemic. Normally, you're sitting in a room together, having face-to-face discussions, and you can make progress on policy decisions. You can work through difficult things. Um, and in this space, there are countries that have a a priority to fish in Antarctica, and there are countries that sort of have a priority to do more conservation or protection. And so those, and then you have a lot of geopolitical tensions in the world that play out in every international meeting, and that is certainly playing out um, right now. And so some of the things on the agenda are are commercial fisheries, but also climate change and also protected areas um, and, and the kind of things we absolutely need to be making progress on. But the meeting is very short. <laughs> the days are short because of the time zone differences. And um, so, uh, so we'll see how we go. So there are a lot of interests to be juggling. And this isn't the first time that you've participated in these kinds of meetings about the future of Antarctica's wildlife. You actually helped create a giant marine protected area in the Ross Sea. And that's an area with incredible biodiversity. Before we talk about the protections, can you just describe the Ross Sea area? Yeah, absolutely. It is an incredibly icy, icy place, (laughs) but it is teeming with life. And I think that's it. Most people imagine Antarctica and they probably imagine some icy desert, but on the waters, it's not like that at all. You just have so many different, uh, different types of wildlife in the Ross Sea. You have, um, a a large amount of emperor penguins. And if you've seen March of the Penguins, that's the species featured there. We have Adelie penguins. We have lots of different species of seals and whales, and then everything um, underneath the water. It literally is teeming with life. And the Ross Sea is an incredibly productive area. And so it has a disproportionate amount of marine life compared to the rest of Antarctica. So literally for me, when I'm on a ship in the Ross Sea, there's just life all around you, which which again, I think it's not how people imagine Antarctica. And I understand that it looks bright green. Why is that? Yeah, so so you uh, actually can, from outer space, see the phytoplankton bloom in the Ross Sea every summer. Phytoplankton is the algae living in the water that, that then actually feeds the whole system below. And every summer, there's such a huge bloom of algae in the Ross Sea that you can see from outer space. So um, and that just has a lot to do with uh, with really big winds that blow through there and uh, and a lot of upwelling that happens. So then tell me about its need for protection and the journey that you want went on to create those protections. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so I started studying this fish uh, in, I guess, 2004. And along the way, I was realizing how vulnerable this this fish, this toothfish was to overfishing. It's a deep sea, long lived animal. And uh, and I remember even defending my master's and talking about the need for a protected area and uh, being told it's an international space, Cassandra, that that can't happen (laughs) in a place like Antarctica. Meanwhile, there was a Boulder based uh, conservation photographer who had read an obscure paper about the Ross Sea, learning that it's it was considered at the time to be perhaps the last intact marine ecosystem left in the entire world. Like literally in these global analyses that the Ross Sea was this last place where you had an intact system that you could actually study and understand 
um, uh, what a healthy system looks like. And so he had uh, begun this project, which he called The Last Ocean. And this conservation photographer named John Weller literally called me up, knew I was studying this toothfish. And he literally said, we need to talk about toothfish. And then convinced me to join his Last Ocean project, which was this grand scale media project that we worked on for 10 years, just putting, putting so much media out into the world to really try to bring the public to the Ross Sea. Um, through uh, through imagery and video. And uh, and he not only convinced me to join the project, he convinced me to move to Boulder. He convinced me to have his children, to marry him <laughs> and to stay here <laughs> indefinitely. And, uh, and it was an amazing experience. We made an award-winning documentary. We worked on policy reports. Eventually it drove me to go back to school to get a PhD to actually study the policy process, to get inside those those international negotiations that I'm participating in now. Um, and we were we were able to witness actually the moment when governments came to agreement in 2016 and agreed to protect the Rossi Antarctica. This area, this protected area is more than 2 million kilometers squared. It's, it's the largest marine protected area in the world still today. And we're just so incredibly proud of that work because it's such a gift to the future generations. But also from being in that room, I can tell you it was this amazing diplomatic win where we were able to witness countries that were that were at odds at the time to actually come together to protect this place for the sake of the world. It was a truly remarkable experience. That sounds like such a journey and what an incredible one. Uh, you've told us a little bit about what's under consideration in Hobart right now, but tell us more generally, what are the top line risks that that governing body needs to manage in the coming years? From my perspective, climate change. The Antarctic is one of the fastest changing places in the world. And obviously, we need to cut emissions. We need to do so much work uh, in every country at home. But one thing we know we can do is to set up these protected areas where we actually limit human impacts and say, let's let's set the area aside. <laughs> let's stop fishing there. Let's not damage it and give it the best chance of, of adapting and surviving in the face of climate change. So that's one of the major things. And then also just finding ways to manage for climate change. So to looking at the fisheries that are happening and finding ways to actually integrate climate change into those management decisions. And you mentioned your husband, you and your husband's work in Antarctica, it's become a kind of family affair. And you have two kids and they've both been to Hobart with you for these international meetings. <laughs> I understand their names also are connected to Antarctica, right? Yes, this has all become a family affair. We've actually dragged my husband's parents down as well. Um, yeah, and my daughter, Adeli, is named for the Adeli penguin, her namesake. And, and that's actually one of the most vulnerable species in Antarctica. When I went um, this last December to a specific region of Antarctica where I used to see Adeli penguins, we couldn't find them because of climate change, because they depend on colder waters. And my poor daughter kept saying, Mom, send me a picture of the Adeli <laughs> penguins. And I couldn't, um, and which is, which is uh, oh. terribly it is. And my, my son's name is uh, Orion Ross, Ross being after the Ross of the Antarctica. So. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining us, Cassandra. Thank you so much for having me today. Cassandra Books is an assistant professor of environmental studies at CU Boulder. She helped in the creation of the largest marine protected area in the world. She's featured in the PBS documentary Age of Nature, which airs Wednesday. After the break, CPR politics team explores early voting turnout in the most recent episode of their podcast, Purplish. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
marijuana has long found its way into the hands and minds of creative people. Smoking definitely brings the emotional intensity where you don't overthink it. But what is the connection between creativity and cannabis? Most people who smoke pot get less creative. To find out, we talk to members of the band's Chicano Batman, Tank and the Bangas, a chef, and a neurologist on the latest episode of On Something. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Election Day is officially one week from today, although people have been early voting for about two weeks now. And that's the focus of the latest episode of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News. Binta Berkland, Caitlin Kim, and Andrew Kenny start with a number. 1.3 million. That is how many ballots have been cast in Colorado. That's our latest data, uh, just about two weeks out from Election Day. Mm -hmm. And to get a sense of what that actually means to see a number like that at this point, I called up Peg Pearl. She's the elections director for Arapahoe County. The signature verification judges came in their first couple of days to have some training and a few ballots to work on to warm up. Um, And instead, we had 10,000 ballots for you. Uh, So it wasn't really a chance to kind of gear up slowly, but we had some great experienced judges helping out the new ones. So what you're seeing is a ton of votes coming in much earlier than normal. That's right. I mean, it's it's more than a quarter of registered voters in the state. Wow. And we're seeing a huge interest among Democrats. So to put it in perspective, nearly half of the state's registered Democrats have already voted. Now, for Republicans, that figure's lower. It's about a third of Republicans. It's expected to narrow significantly. But Democrats are feeling pretty good about what they're seeing. I talked to Ian Silveri. He's with the group Progress Now. And he says, uh, these figures actually change the strategies for each major party in the Mm -hmm. coming days. Democrats can now spend more time on lower turnout voters, whereas Republicans have to make sure that their reliable voters just don't stay home this year for some reason. I mean, one really interesting thing Silveri told me was that Democratic women are really driving this surge, and that's followed by unaffiliated men. And as a rule, typically Democrats in Colorado vote later and closer to an election um, compared to Republicans. So we're just not seeing that right now. Yeah, watching these turnout numbers come in, it's almost like winter is arriving early. Like the whole seasonal schedule is is arriving early. And we're going to still have to wait to find out what that means. But uh, I thought one thing that Peg Pearl, the elections director, said that was really illuminating. She described how ballots are even filling up the warehouse early. Well, we are full of ballots and moving along. And it's basically with our warehouse usually would look about a week from now. So, Lynn, you've been out on the road while we've been talking to officials and strategists here What are you hearing from these early voters? Sort of getting to some of the things that you guys have been talking about, about early turnout. A lot of the people that I've spoken with who are Republicans or leaning, um, unaffiliated leaning Republicans, were saying they kind of wanted to hold on to their ballot and wait till the last minute. Some of them wanted more information, but others were just saying they plan to vote on Election Day. I think some of the, the information that they're getting and concerns that they're getting about voter fraud and safety of their ballots have have sort of come become foremost in their mind. But like overall, a number of the people are voting um, sort of for the practical reasons, right? Like a couple of people I spoke with headed out of town and wanted to vote before they left. And a lot of other people are voting because they just see this as an important election, like a Kim Kraska. She's a registered Democrat in Durango. I've always voted, but this is the, the one that matters the most to me in my lifetime. <laughs> 
I just hate what's happened in the last four years with our the hate that's that the division, the damage done to the environment, environmental protections. Um, I, I just wanted to stop, and I, I want to be able to watch the news again without being angry. <laughs> Um, so so she voted early, so she'd know that her vote was counted. And part of being counted, though, is making sure that your ballot is accepted. Even though a lot of the Republican voters I've talked to in Colorado say they trust our all-mail ballot system since we've been doing it for a while. Um, I talked to, to Ryan Lynch, a Republican strategist. He still thinks they're being impacted by what the president's saying and concerns they may have about other states. I think there's no doubt about the fact that the rhetoric that you're hearing on a national level plays into distrust in the in the mail voting process. That said, the majority of voters, uh, certainly the majority of voters who have been voting in Colorado, understand differently. They understand that our system is is tried and true. It's safe. That lends itself to thinking we may see Republicans really close this voting gap as we get closer to Election Day or even on Election Day itself. That, I think that's very true. I think that's what a lot of the Republicans that I spoke out here on the Western Slope were saying. Republicans better hope so, because typically, you know, we don't see this big divide with Democrats outnumbering Republicans so badly in the early vote. Right. In 2016, they were neck and neck right through Election Day. And this time, Democrats are just showing up in droves. Yep. Well, but I think a lot of Democrats, especially the Democrats that I've been talking to out here, are really concerned about this election, right? They really want to make sure their vote counts. They're voting early because they want to make sure that they don't have any problems with their ballot. I spoke with Morgan Cartwright. He's a 20-year-old unaffiliated voter. He did vote Democrat, he said, even though all his friends and family are voting Republican. He lives in Cortez. And I talked to him just after he stuck his ballot in the mail. And this is what he had to say. I was afraid that, like, there might be issues. I remember previously, I think I got rejected because my signature was off or something. Oh, okay. So if there's a problem, maybe if I voted earlier, I could deal with that. And I heard from people, like, who had just gotten married and she never signed with her married name. So she was worried about the signature verification. And I also heard a couple of people say that they knew, like, how they were going to vote. Nothing was going to change their mind. And they just kind of wanted to do their part and get out of the way for the people who do decide to vote later or on election day so that there wouldn't be any lines like what we've seen in some other states. You know, I know clerks always appreciate that because, you know, our voting system allows the counties to start processing (laughs) ballots, you know, as they're coming in. And so it does make for a smoother election day process because a lot of people are still going to vote on election day. That's right. They're allowed to start counting 15 days out. So they are already underway processing all those early ballots that are coming in. Uh, Benta, did you learn anything about how this compares to, say, like 2018? I know that we said it's pretty different from 2016. Right. Well, the analysts I talked to said you know, 2018 may be the best comparison because, hmm. you know, that's when Colorado saw a surge in unaffiliated voters really turning out in this off midterm election. And they had the highest turnout rate compared to Republicans or Democrats. David Flaherty is a Republican strategist. He heads the Magellan Group. He said it's a very similar election in his mind to 2018. The 2018 election was really a referendum on Donald Trump's leadership. And a lot of younger voters, a lot of unaffiliated voters, uh, wanted to cast their ballot when they normally would not, perhaps to have their voice heard, if you will. And now that the presidential election is finally here, that's why we believe or anticipate to see the exact same thing. Hopefully here in Colorado, we'll have results pretty quickly on election night. But if this is the pattern we're seeing across the country with Republican votes surging in late, 
then we could be waiting for a while. And especially states that can't process ballots early and states that are ramping up way more mail voting for the first time. So, you know, we could have answers to to some of our ballot questions pretty early, potentially on election night. A lot will still be undecided nationally. But I know Republicans are still kind of holding out hope here for a change in the winds. So obviously some of those voter anxieties and concerns driving people to vote early, we're also seeing that play out in a different way. Viral social media posts that are causing some real distress, people talking about supposed intimidation and other issues at the ballot box. We had to know more. So we're pulling in Allison Sherry, who's been our reporter on this topic, to help us explain what's going on. Thanks for letting me make an appearance on your show. So Allison, give us an example of these kind of viral posts that we're seeing. So one came from my own neighborhood next door, um, uh, which is, you know, where we always get all of our news. And no, I'm just kidding. Um, no, one came from my own neighborhood next door, and it said there were people at the Hiawatha Davis Rec Center, uh, which is up in North Park Hill, um, standing outside, telling people dropping off their ballots that they needed a stamp, which huh. is obviously not true. And if you actually have dropped your ballot off, you'll see there's a big sign on the ballot boxes that says, you don't need a stamp for this. Yeah, but for the ballot box, for the drop box. For the drop box, exactly. You do for the, uh, the mailbox. No, of course, for the mailbox. But this was people who were coming to drop off their ballots at the drop boxes, hmm. that there was supposedly, reportedly, a person telling people they needed a stamp, which most people who come to the drop box have not stamped their um, ballots. That's like one reason you do the drop That's box. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so... There was that, and it, it, it generated, I mean, I think more than 100 comments, and people huh. were outraged, and people were telling them to call, you know, the Secretary of State's huh. office. And um, and so then there was another one that um, a reporter at Denverite had posted from his neighborhood, people in tactical gear standing outside, looking like intimidating. I, I, don't, I don't know. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I think tactical gear should be in air quotes. Um, <laughs> but um, and so what we did and and I'm not trying to make light of this because voter intimidation exists and we know this and we've seen this in other states and we've seen reports. There was an armed guy at a polling place in Florida yesterday. Um, so I, I am making light of some of this, but I'm also I also want to acknowledge that voter intimidation does exist and I am taking it extremely seriously. And with but the what two. Came out, yeah, what came out yeah with the two. Uh, cases that I was talking about earlier that happened in Colorado, we went, I went to both the Denver Police Department and uh, the Denver clerk and reporter, Paul Lopez, and also uh, Jenna Griswold, who's the Secretary of State. Um, They looked at um, surveillance footage for up to 24, 36 hours, I think, Mm. um, and they did not see any evidence of this happening. Um, in those two places, there was and it another seems like post. With the tactical guys, th- th- that would have been pretty easy to see because these drop boxes are monitored by yeah. surveillance cameras. They are, and people are not allowed to electioneer. You know, advocate for a campaign, advocate for a, a political candidate within a hundred feet from a drop box. But I guess you could stand outside of a hundred feet of a ballot box in tactical gear um, as a as a First Amendment issue. Um, but voter intimidation is illegal. So I think it's a, it'd be a, you know, if you saw something that was concerning to you, there's a little bit of a bubble law um, right now mm. on that. I mean, Ellison, I was going to ask, how far is this stuff spreading? You know, because I saw something yeah. on the official Twitter account for the Senate Democrats mm-hmm. in the state, you know, talking about some of this and encouraging people to vote. Right. Um, you know, it may not be based on things that are actually true, that are happening, you know, 
right here in Colorado. And and I think, you know, there was another Facebook f- post that I, I, someone sent to me. It was out of Longmont um, that there were people in MAGA hats uh, threatening people outside of a polling place in Longmont. Mm. I talked to the Boulder clerk and recorder. I talked to the Longmont police back and forth. They went through um, 48 hours of police reports. They, they found no evidence. This person on their Facebook page said that they called Longmont police, but this the Longmont police said that this didn't happen. Mm. So I think... The lesson here, which is what we should all say all the time, is everything, anything you read on social media, be extremely skeptical of that. So while I was live tweeting, you know, sort of Colorado is a safe place to be, tweets from from elected officials, I got a direct message from State Representative Leslie Harrod, who cautioned me that voter intimidation does exist. And she'd heard some reports um, where she in her district, um, which is also in Park Hill, which I'd mentioned earlier. And, um, you know, I, I said, can we jump on the phone? You know, I'd love to talk to you about this. So she talked to me. She said, you know, I have no doubt that everything they're saying is true, but I also want you to, I want to caution you that voter intimidation can exist and we want to make sure that everybody, you know, if you see something, say something sort of. So, I mean, um, I, I just wonder if there's a problem when there's misinformation on things that's not, that you know, that aren't true. Right. And then when, if we actually do see some of these things are happening, um, yeah. Are people going to take it less seriously? That's yeah. right. We need to be really careful with how we talk about this because on the one hand, this is primed for misinformation and disinformation where everybody's on edge and maybe things that people see get misinterpreted and spread quickly on social media. But on the other hand, individual acts of intimidation and disruption do happen. Exactly. And uh, I met a couple in Cortez that actually told me that they had read on their social media feed that a ballot box had been burned in California. So they walked past the ballot box that was outside of the drop-off location and walked straight into the county clerk's office to hand off their ballots because they didn't want anything to happen to it just in case. And I don't know, Allison, if you're hearing stories like this, too. There was a ballot box burned in a suburb of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I I think, you know, that's obviously under investigation. Um, But but yeah, I think I think I want to say that there is absolutely an attempt to sow chaos into this election. And I hmm. think that everybody needs to be skeptical. And when I say be skeptical of what you read on social media, I'm not saying oh, that's because it's all un- not true. Some of it might be true. But I've done some reporting that there are foreign actors trying to sow chaos and confusion into this hmm. election. So if they are posting something on a chat room or or some advocacy group website or they've created an advocacy group but people think is legit um, mm-hmm. and they cut and paste the stories and put it onto Nextdoor about people in tactical gear sh- showing up at a ballot box, then that that does cause concern. I mean, that might that if it's just one elderly couple that decides, you know what, it's not worth it for me to like walk mm-hmm. over to that ballot box and and drop it off because I don't really want to see anybody in tactical gear, then they've won, right? I mean, then they've won. That Even if it's a misinformation campaign, they've won. So I, but, um, I mean, Allison, what we've heard about foreign actors and we've mm-hmm. heard the national intelligence uh, folks tell us this is a really high risk right mm-hmm. now. When you were reading social media posts, did you see skepticism from any of the people responding to these allegations? You know, was that in people's minds like, hey, do we know that this is true? 
Um, not really. Not in that initial post that I saw on Nextdoor. I actually did do a story about this, and I posted my story on Nextdoor just so I, you know, so I like was like, just so everybody reads this. Close this is yeah. a story. Um, then the person who had originally posted that uh, removed her post, huh. um, and then I had, you know, a lot of people said to my, on my post, "Oh, I, I thought it seemed sketchy. That seemed fake." But no one said it to the actual original post. So okay. know, maybe they're just trying to be polite. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Next door is actually not a bastion of politeness. So probably not. But yeah, it's um, like after the fact, like, oh, I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, to me, um, one of the best answers to this is a drop of skepticism and underlining the resiliency of the system. Because, you know, say a ballot box burns in, in Colorado, that would stink. But we would have ways to recover from that. People would know that their ballots hadn't been processed and counted. Mm-hmm. They'd be able to vote again. So it's best not to hyper-amplify these individual acts and occasionally untrue rumors because that's what's really going to discourage people. And so disinformation is almost the widespread discussion of all of this and not even the individual acts. Yeah. And I want to say again that I, I am investigating every single one of these reports. I don't I'm not treating them all as fake. Yeah. I, I, every time that we get a tip or a rumor or someone sees something on a social media post, I'm immediately calling the police, the local police department. I'm immediately I'm in touch with people all the way up to the state FBI. So mm. we are treating these as legitimate acts that happened. We have not found one yet that has been true, but that doesn't mean that we're not taking them all seriously. I mean, you know, just as a reporter, because obviously it would be a news story if there were people in tactical gear standing outside of a ballot box at a rec center. Well, we're glad to have you on it. (laughs) Yep. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, Allison. Well, now that we've covered voting in droves and security concerns, I'd like to wrap us up today uh, with one final thing. This is our moment that we'd like to call Wait, what, 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 And for me today, it's um, it was a, a record-breaking day for elections mail. I opened up my, my mailbox last Friday. Guess how many pieces I got? Hmm. I'm going to base it on, you know, the fact that I haven't had a ton, but you said it was record-breaking. I'm going to go with eight or nine. Okay. Lynn, what you got? I saw your tweet, so I oh, kind of know. <laughs> Isn't that cheating? <laughs> but you also get a point for following me on Twitter. Um, the the answer is uh, 20. 20 oh pieces gosh. of mail. Yep. Wow. Almost filled up the mailbox. Tons of state rep mail. A uh, bunch of mail on some of the assorted amendments. I've been getting tons on Tabor. The we're watching you, did you vote kind of mail. Hmm. It, Literally covered my entire kitchen island. It was spectacular. I guess I'm in less of a swing area, or they just don't care about me. You know, I haven't, I haven't gotten a lot of mail. I've, ha- I've had a few, but nothing like that. That's crazy. Well, we're unaffiliated voters in Jeffco, and it's quite a swing district. So, I'm, I think that might have been the peak of it, though. We, I haven't seen anything quite like that. We're back to nine and ten piece days. And you're in one of the competitive state legislative races too. Oh yeah, so. we're getting hammered on that. And the Democrats are outspending the Republicans like crazy right now, at least in my mailbox. <laughs> An excerpt of Purplish, the politics podcast from CPR News with Binta Berkland, Andrew Kinney, Caitlin Kim, and special guest Allison Sherry. You can hear this and all of the pre-election episodes at Stitcher, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts, or at CPR.org. That's also where you'll find the election guide. 
Teenagers are reporting rising rates of mental health struggles during the pandemic. Between political polarization and isolation, many say they're struggling. CPR's Jenny Brundine went on the up-and-down journey of one teen who has found her own path to cope with hard times. Like many of her peers, 16-year-old Deja has struggled with depression and anxiety disorder. She made dozens of audio tapes over the course of a year, long enough for me to watch her discover her own insights into herself. Everything sucks sometimes, but it's not forever. That's sometimes. And, God, I, I really wish I could tell myself that back then, like a year ago. I met Deja a year ago when she was 15, about a year or so after the worst period of her life. Like many teens, unraveling why she feels the way she does has been mostly a solitary struggle. There were a lot of factors, but the political climate made her feel worse. Deja arrived in the U.S. illegally when she was around two. The rhetoric around immigration after the 2016 election took a toll for a long time. I was struggling with myself. I was struggling with my education. I didn't know if I was even worthy enough of, like, being here. Like, I was like, are they right? Is, am I what they say I am? Like, I can't go to college now. I won't be able to, to get a job. Am I just, like, a burden here? I, it was very hard for me to comprehend that and to very much realize that I wasn't what they said I was. She wants to be a doctor. Deja says she knew she'd have to work 10 times harder than anyone born here. My stress levels were so high. I just had so many standards for myself that I knew were not achievable, but I thought I could do. I just hope this pain goes away. It wasn't just the political environment. In her audio tapes, she explains ongoing turmoil with friends and family. And I just felt out of place. I really did not feel like I belonged or I fit in. She struggled to find help at school. Her depression got worse, fueled by a habit of blaming herself for her troubles. I was my own enemy. I was just my own bully, I guess. She hit bottom. Her mom helped her find a counselor at the Mental Health Center of Denver. They'd take a long bus ride to her appointments. That year, her eighth grade, Deja began to recover. She learned techniques to distract from negative thoughts, like untying a frozen towel. She did talk therapy, learning healthy coping mechanisms, breathing, journaling. She learned to accept herself more. It really helped me come to terms with how I was treating myself. And slowly but surely, my counselor and I like figured out how to get myself to like love myself more. I would have this reminder on my phone, be like, tell yourself something nice today. It was, like, very funny, and I I thought it was very (laughs) weird at the beginning, but, like, in the bad days, it really did help. It it, it did. But getting better is a long journey. On her audio tapes, she shows me her life, plays me the music she likes, reveals her ups and downs. It was great. We ate some great food. Sometimes she's happy, like when she played volleyball. But then one of her closest friends moves away. I don't know how I'm going to handle this. Overall, I'm just super stressed and just super sad. I don't know what to do. A tendency to blame herself resurfaces. She often feels alone and misunderstood. School becomes a high-pressure, exhausting routine. Chemistry, man. Like, what the heck? The classes giving me so many gray hairs. But as the tapes go on, she talks more about the bright spots, like what helps her. I'm, like, such a proud cat mom. 
<laughs> They've helped so much. And helping others in a campaign to bring more mental health supports to schools. It brings me peace in a way because in a way I'm healing myself and trying to spread that healing towards others, if that makes sense. Deja still has bouts of depression. But now I've reached some sort of peace within myself. I don't know how. It seems so constant, right? Like the pain and the stress in school and like family expectations. But earlier this year, she said she's gotten used to it and it's not as detrimental as before. Then COVID hit. School has started back up and she's finding it hard to adjust. No volleyball, no extracurriculars, no being around people all day. From going to that to nothing, it's just, it's really hard to get used to. And especially since my classes are way harder this year. And the learning style is just very different. It's just very stressful right now for me, at least. I just miss the way things were. She says it's a battle between finding motivation when everything in the world seems messed up and then also not wanting to fail. She still goes to therapy, writes poetry about how she's feeling. Listening to Korean pop is a huge coping mechanism, like the song Spring Day. It talks about even though you're in hard times, like in winter, You'll reach the spring where things are brighter, things are easier. And the whole moral of the song is like comforting the listener. So today is Monday. Something else has helped Deja understand herself, making voice memos as part of this story. For the time that I did this, it healed. It allowed me to heal and it allowed me to... To become more self-aware. Even talking into her phone alone, she says, it felt like someone was listening. It was also this raw depiction of her emotions and how they change over time, something that's hard for teenagers to see. And that's Deja's central message to other teens. The wave will pass where you feel like it's all okay. And it's a process. It's a process of learning and it's a process of, like, loving yourself. A more stable future is also something she's cautiously optimistic about. In June, a Supreme Court ruling cleared the way for her to apply for the DACA program, allowing undocumented immigrants to work and study in the U.S. She says she has to have faith that the country will be a more welcoming place by the time she's ready to enter college. Yeah, I just have to trust in those people and have faith in humanity. Hopefully one day a good old person's going to come and care about people like me. But <laughs> until then, I'll, like, I'll hang on. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.